Let's uh, open our Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 13 today. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through verse 41. Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 41. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went out from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had, him, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he said also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. 
Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. That sends our reading of God's encouraging word. May all who hear it discover the true hope that comes through Jesus Christ. What do you think of when you hear the word encouragement? What does it mean to give an encouraging word? Maybe you think of that person who is, who is going through a rough time and needs to hear something positive, something affirming in order to change their outlook on life. Perhaps you think of, of that child who just aced their exam or hit that game-winning shot. And so you say encouraging things, letting that child know that you see them, that you're proud of them. You see, there are many ways that, that encouragement can be given. But probably the most powerful way is when you bring hope to those who have no hope. When you deliver good news to those that have none. And this is exactly what we see the Apostle Paul doing in our scripture for today. He, he is giving a word of encouragement to a group of people who, whether they knew it or not, were in a hopeless state. And that encouraging word that he brought was the name of Jesus. Dear friends, my, my desire as we go through this passage today, as we go through Paul's message, is that this same word of encouragement will speak to your souls and will give you hope. Hope in a world that seems to be lacking in that department. My hope is that you will see the face of your Savior and be heartened because of it. But before we begin, let's, let's do a little refresher first. If, if you remember from, from last week, we had, we had talked a lot about the gospel, right? About the good news of Jesus Christ, about how Paul and Barnabas brought this gospel message to the island of, of Cyprus. How, how they went into the synagogues and proclaimed Jesus. Yes, the gospel is something that is to be preached the gospel isn't something that we do. It is Rather, it is something that needs to be proclaimed. And so it is to be spoken with our mouths and it is to be heard with receptive ears. And yet we also saw that the, the proclamation of this message will, will bring about enemies, right? As both Satan and the world do not want to hear the good news of Jesus. They don't want us to preach it. And that's because what the gospel message does, it reorientates us so that, our, so that our focus is no longer upon the world and the powers of this world, but upon our true king. The gospel, it diminishes the powers and the authorities of this world. And that, that's why... We saw last week this, this magician, right? Bar Jesus, right? The, the son of Jesus, that was his name. He opposed Paul and Barnabas in an effort to dissuade the proconsul of Cyprus from believing the gospel. 
Because he knew that, that if the proconsul believed the message, if, if he started believing in this King Jesus, then, then his own power would, would be in jeopardy. And yet Jesus would not let his gospel go unheard. And so he cast a blindness upon this magician, turn, turning this once powerful man into a shadow of his former self. And when the, that proconsul, when he saw all that happened, what did he do? He, he turned from his sins. He believed the good news that was preached to him about this Jesus. And that's because the gospel is the power of God. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so last week we learned a lot about the gospel message, didn't we? But what Luke didn't tell us is what that message is. What was it that, that Paul preached when he went into those synagogues? What did Paul share with the, with the proconsul when he was on the island of Cyprus? Well, fortunately for us today, Luke gives us an insider's look at the gospel message that Paul preached. He, he takes us inside one of these Jewish synagogues as the people of Antioch, Pisidia, get to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So, dear friends, open up your ears and listen to this word of encouragement from one of the greatest missionaries that the world has ever seen. Let's begin. Look, look at Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 15. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Here we see that Paul and Barnabas, they have now left that island of Cyprus and have made their way to Perga and Pamphylia. Uh, apparently the work that God had for them on that island was complete. For now the Holy Spirit was directing them elsewhere. And it's worth noting that, that before they moved on, that, that John Mark, this man who had been by their side ever since they came back from Jerusalem, had for some reason left the group. Luke tells us that in Perga he had parted ways and went back to Jerusalem. Luke doesn't tell us why he left, but as we'll see later on in the book of Acts, this, this would cause an air of contention between Paul and Barnabas. But I'm going to leave that for another time. Just, just kind of make for yourself that mental note of what's occurring with uh, John Mark here. Well, after John Mark left, they then made their way north and into the Roman province of Galatia. And so if you think of the book of Galatians, that was a, a book that was written to the churches in this region. And so Antioch Pisidia might have been one of the churches that received this letter to the Galatians. And so they, they worked their, their way to the city known as Antioch and Pisidia. Now we've heard the name Antioch before, right? I mean, they were sent from the church in Antioch, both Paul and Barnabas. And so this isn't the same Antioch. Rather, 
during this time, there were, there were probably several cities that were called Antioch. And so what Luke is doing here is he is clarifying uh, by using the name Antioch in Pisidia. And so this is a different Antioch altogether. And for a better understanding, you look at, you look at the map, you can see Antioch over there, where they were sent from, and they go to Cyprus, they go to Perga, head north of Perga, you get to Pisidian Antioch. Um, and that's where they're at. And when they get to this city, what, what was the first thing that they did, right? I mean, what's the first thing that Paul always did when he got to a city? He went to the Jews first, right? He, he waited for the Sabbath. They went into the local synagogue in order to proclaim the message of Jesus. And we'll see why in a minute why this was Paul's strategy. But what was going on in this synagogue on that Sabbath day? And what did Luke tell us? That the law and the prophets were read to the people. And this is typical for all synagogues of that time. That's because the, the, the people of Israel... They have always been a people of the word, right? And so they would go into God's word every Sabbath and read God's word and study from God's word. Now, now this reading was usually followed up by some sort of teaching or instruction, giving the people clarity as to the meaning of the text, similar to either a, a Sunday school lesson or to an expository sermon that you could hear preached in many many different churches today. And yet before the day was finished, what else happened? The Luke, what does Luke tell us? That the, the rulers of this synagogue came to Paul and Barnabas asking this, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Wow. I mean, what an opening, am I right? I mean, what's going on here? Is this just good fortune on the part of Paul and Barnabas? Was this just God's providence that these two missionaries would be asked to speak? Actually, Paul and Barnabas knew that this was going to happen before they even stepped foot into that synagogue. And that's because one of the typical customs of these synagogues was that when a rabbi came to visit that rabbi would be given the privilege of giving a word of encouragement. In other words, a, a short message or a, a sermon. And Paul, being a trained rabbi, most likely wore his rabbinical robe and would have been given this courtesy. And so, yes, in some sense, it was in God's providence that, that Paul got to speak to this congregation because that's how God has structured these synagogues hundreds of, year, hundreds of years prior. And so Paul and Barnabas, they, they knew this, and they, they would use this to their advantage in order to further the gospel message. Well, let's see what happened next. Let's see how Paul first addressed the crowd. Look at, look at the next verse. Look at verse 16. <clears throat> so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Knowing the importance of what he was about to say, Paul, he commands the attention of his audience. He, he gestures with his hand and tells them to listen up, right? 
But who is it that he wants to listen? Who, who is this audience of his? Paul addresses both the men of Israel and those who fear God. The men of Israel would have been the diaspora Jews, right? Or the Hellenists in that city. Jews who were born outside of Israel. Those, those who feared God would have been Gentile believers in the one true God. And so for the most part, these would have all been people who, who would have been familiar, if not very familiar, with everything Israel, right? From the Word of God, which would have been the Old Testament Scriptures, to even the current happenings that have been taking place in and near Jerusalem. And Paul knew this, and, and this is why he took the approach that he did with those whom he was about to witness. He had, he had geared, he had structured his message towards the audience to whom he was speaking. Uh, for you will see there, there, there are three apologetic arguments that Paul will give concerning Jesus. Three defenses of the Christian faith that he will lay out before he will give the gospel command, before he will call them to repentant trust in Jesus. Argument number one, Jesus is the culmination of the salvific history of Israel. Argument number two, Jesus was the focus of Israel at the time of his arrival. And, then, and finally, argument number three, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's messianic promises. Let me repeat those for you. Jesus is a culmination of the salvific history of Israel. Jesus was the focus of Israel at the time of his arrival. And Jesus is the fulfillment of God's messianic promises. Let's, let's look at the first of these three, that, that Jesus is a culmination of salvific history of Israel. Look at, look at verses 17 through 23. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. <clears throat> now, now the, the, the picture that Paul is painting here demonstrates a, a pattern, if you will, that throughout Israel's history was, was often repeated. And this was a pattern that of the pattern went like this. You had an unbelieving people falling under the judgment of God, only to have God come to their rescue and save them. Let, let me illustrate. I mean, we 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 begin with people in slavery, right? The the Jews were in Egypt under the heavy, heavy burden of Pharaoh. And yet it was 
God's hand that these people were freed, highlighting the fact that salvation comes through God. And we could talk about all the details, we could talk about the plagues, we could talk about the parting of the Red Sea, but the point that Paul is making here and, and that he wants us to know is simple, that God is the one who delivered his people. And yet, despite such a great rescue, Paul mentions that, that God had to put up with them, right? I mean, that's the words he chose to use, to put up with them. That doesn't sound right. And that's because these same people were grumbling in the wilderness, complaining about the food, about how much better they had it when they were slaves in Egypt. And they even created a, a golden calf, right, and began to worship a false god. And so they, they demonstrated their, their ungratefulness and their, and their lack of faith in, in Yahweh, the one who used his mighty hands to free them from slavery. And yet God put up with them, right? He bore with them and eventually brought them to the promised land where Paul says that it was God who had overpowered seven nations in order that he might give to the people a land as an inheritance. Again, this just highlights for us that, that God is the one who is defeating their enemies in order that they might have a kingdom of their own, that they might have a place that they can call home. And it was in that land that God would be their king. And yet, as generations passed, what do we see? You know, the people, they begin doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And thus, all the curses that God had warned about in his law fell upon them. And that's why God needed to raise up these judges, right? Paul talks about the time of the judges. Well, these judges only came about because the people were sinful. And in order to rescue his people once again, these judges needed to be raised up. God had, had, had these chosen saviors, if you will, delivered to these people in order to defeat their enemies. And yet through it all, God was still their king. That is, until he wasn't, right? You see, even though God continued to show them his mercy, the people eventually rejected God as their king. And they demanded a human king, just like all the other nations. And so God, what did he do? He, he gave them Saul, who by all outward appearances seemed to be the perfect choice. Except he wasn't. For he was not a man after God's own heart. Rather, he was concerned with his own power and his own glory. And that's why God would eventually have to remove him from the throne and give to the people a new king, one who would follow after his own will, after his own heart. David took the throne and became this savior king for God's people. For, for what did David do? He, he removed all of Israel's enemies from the land and created peace in Israel for the first time ever. I, I mean, do you see it? Do you see this this? This cyclical pattern of rebellion followed by God's curse, followed by God's rescue. Israel would rebel and then, and then have these times of distress until they, they would call upon their God and God would deliver them out of their trouble. 
And then they would start the process all over again until they finally get to King David. And yet David was not the end of the story, was he? For what did Paul say next? Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now I have to imagine that that up to this point, everybody in that room was kind of tracking with Paul, right? And these were all familiar stories that they knew. Stories of Israel's tumultuous history. And now Paul mentioned the name of Jesus. And it's not that they would have never heard of Jesus, because trust me, they heard of Jesus. But, but it is a claim that Paul makes about him, how he has now declared this man to be Israel's savior. You see, what Paul is doing here is he, he is pointing out that, that, that Jesus does what only God can do, that he saves that, that he is actually the, the, the climax of God's deliverance. And that's because in Jesus we find the culmination of the salvific history of Israel. Which leads us to Paul's second point. That Jesus was also the focus of Israel at the time of his arrival. That everybody had their eyes upon him. Look at verses 24 and 25. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, 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 for the majority of the Jews at that time, they, they would have considered John the Baptist to be a prophet of God. And so they would have believed the words that John had spoke. They would have believed that they were words coming from God. And, and what was the message that John was proclaiming? That Messiah is on his way, right? That's why he preached a, a baptism of repentance that the people might be ready for Messiah's arrival. But John didn't just foretell of Messiah's arrival, but he also spoke of the superiority of this Messiah as well. That, 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 that even he, as a prophet of God, was not worthy to untie this man's sandals. Now think about that. How crazy is that? Back then, it, it was always the, the lowest of slaves that had to deal with the feet of their master, whether it was untying sandals or, or washing their master's feet. I mean, this is what the lowest of the low did. And yet John said he wasn't even worthy of being a low slave before this man. Basically, what, what, what John was communicating was that, that this Messiah, well, he's on a totally different level than even the greatest of earthly kings. But this is who this Jesus is, is he not? He, he is the king of kings. He, he is the Lord of lords. And he is, he is the one whom we need to prepare for. And that requires repentance. 
just as John the Baptist preached. But John the Baptist wasn't the only one who had a focus upon Jesus. For, for pretty much all of Israel at the time of Christ's arrival had their sights fixed upon him. Look at verses 26 through 31. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. We see this shift as Paul now addresses his audience one more time. Again, he, he addresses both the Jews and the God-fearers, those who were in that synagogue. And what did he say to them? That the message of salvation had been sent. That God had revealed to them this messianic savior through both the history of Israel and through the things that took place when Jesus had arrived. God's salvation was now known and there was no excuse not to listen. And there's no excuse for us not to listen as well. For we have the same historical records that Paul did. And God has revealed to us this salvific plan that comes through his son, Jesus Christ. What was revealed to the Jews back then has been revealed to us right now. And I stand before you as a witness that only through Jesus Christ will you find salvation from the wrath that is to come. And so I beg you to pay heed to this encouraging word from the Apostle Paul. And yet there were those who did not pay heed even when Jesus was in their midst, right? Those who closed their eyes and, and covered their ears and refused to see all that God was doing among them. Paul tells us that the Jews within Jerusalem failed to recognize their Messiah, the, 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 the very Savior that God had delivered to them. And what was the reason that Paul gave as to why they failed to see? Because they did not understand the very scriptures that had been read to them every Sabbath. Every Sabbath since they were a little kid. And yet in their failure, they had become the very ones who had fulfilled those scriptures. Who had fulfilled what the prophets had prophesied as they sentenced an innocent man to death. I mean, remember, it was Pilate who had washed his hands in front of the crowds, right? and declared this Jesus as innocent. And yet, the Jews within that city, what did, what did they shout? Crucify! Crucify! And yet, this was all a part of God's plan. For this man's death was necessary. Necessary in order to, in order to fulfill God's word, and, and necessary in order to bring about God's salvation. 
And so while the crucifixion of Jesus was the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world, it was also the means that God had used to bring salvation to his people. And so Jesus hung from that tree until he was dead. And then they laid him in a tomb, sealing his fate. Or so they thought. For what did Paul say next? But God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. And here we see the ultimate problem that mankind has being solved. This problem of death. And death has come about because of our sin. And it has held its authority over man ever since the fall. Nobody could fight it. Nobody could escape it. That is until now. Because death's doors could not hold Jesus. Amen. He, he has risen from the dead and he now stands alive and victorious. And this fact could be, can be verified by the eyewitnesses themselves. That's what Paul told his audience. Their accounts could be tested. They could be tried. And so it's no wonder that the focus of Israel during the time of Jesus was upon Jesus. For who has done what he has done? Who, who else can claim to be this messianic savior other than him? And that's because Jesus is not only the culmination of the salvific history of Israel, but he was also the focus of Israel at the time of his arrival. And yet Paul wasn't quite finished. There, there was more that he desired to share. For Jesus is also the fulfillment of God's messianic promises. Look at verses 32 through 37. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this, is, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. What does Paul say about this resurrection of the dead? That it is good news. And we'll soon see that it is not just good news for Jesus, but it is good news for all those who trust in this man. And that's because God's promise has been fulfilled. And which promise is that? The, the, the promise that, that David's heir would establish this eternal kingdom. That he would be put on an, an eternal throne. A, a throne that has authority over all of the earth. 
And there are three prophetic passages that Paul quotes. Three passages that bear this out. The first being from Psalm 2. Look at, look at verses 6 through, through 8. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so we see this king who is enthroned upon Zion, upon that holy hill within Jerusalem. He, he sits on the throne of David. And though he is David's heir, he, he is a greater king than David ever was. For what does the psalmist tell us? That he is the begotten son of God. But not only that, but his, his rule is greater than David's as well. For his dominion expands beyond the boundaries of Israel. And in fact, it extends over all the nations to the ends of the earth. But the promise continues as Paul then quotes from the book of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. In many ways, this passage reminds me of the story of the Samaritan woman at the well with Jesus. And Jesus told her that if she knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to her, give me a drink, she would have asked him. And he would have given to her living water. I mean, this passage from Isaiah, it, it talks about free drink and free food, right? And, and not just any food, but, but lavish food. And it, it, it contrasts what is bought through hard labor, right? To that which is given freely by the grace of God. Basically, this is an invitation, if you will, from God to the people of Israel to receive the gift that comes through the promise of David. That they too can be a part of this everlasting covenant. And so what Paul is hinting at here and what, what he will soon reveal as he quotes the next scripture is that, is that the power that raised Jesus from the dead will extend to those who come under this new and everlasting covenant. So let's look at that next passage. Look at, look at Psalm 16, verses 5 through 11, as Paul quotes from there as well. <clears throat> The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. 
and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I mean, talk about an encouraging word. And even though this psalm was written by King David, where does it find its fulfillment? And David's offspring, Jesus Christ. For we know that, that David's body saw corruption, right? That his flesh is now gone, that his bones are still lying in that tomb. And yet Jesus rose from the dead when he conquered the grave. And he didn't just rise only to die again. Rather, he, he, is, he was raised to life with an incorruptible body. In other, in other words, his flesh will not see decay. His body will not see corruption. And that, my friends, is how he can be this eternal king. An eternal king sitting upon that eternal throne. An eternal king who has authority over all the earth. An eternal king ruling over an eternal kingdom. And it is in this incorruptible life in which he extends incorruptible life to all those who believe in him who belong to his kingdom. And so it is through the resurrection that we see Jesus being the fulfillment of God's messianic promises. Three arguments that Paul laid out. One, Jesus is a culmination of the salvific history of Israel. Two, Jesus was the focus of Israel at the time of his arrival. And finally, three, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's messianic promises. It's great that we all know this, but what does it mean, right? And what type of bearing does this have on our lives? What does this mean for the men and women who were sitting in that synagogue? For those who had heard Paul's message? What does it mean for us today? Paul gives us an answer. Look at, look at verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Can I get an amen? Amen. This is now the third time that Paul addresses his audience, only this time he, he makes no distinctions, right? He makes no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles as he labels them all brothers. And, and by addressing them in this way, he, he is establishing that this invitation is for everyone, that it's not just for the Jews. And what is this invitation? 
Well, for one, God now offers forgiveness of sins through this man, Jesus. That through this Son of God, through his death and his resurrection, the penalty for our sins has been taken care of. That forgiveness can come through the cross of Christ. But Jesus not only offers forgiveness, but he offers freedom as well. Freedom from the law of Moses, a, a law which could not save, but only condemn. Now, now what Paul means by this is that no matter how many times a man offered a sacrifice at the temple, it, it was never sufficient to make that man clean. For that man would just continue to sin and need another sacrifice the very next day. And yet through the sacrifice of Jesus, there is found an atonement that can appease God's wrath once for all. And that's because a, a righteousness that takes away all of our sins can only be found in the blood of Jesus. And so if a sinner turns to God's Messiah in repentant faith, then God will acquit that man, acquit him of all of his sins. And this, my friends, is a free gift of God. And it is available to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Here, friends, do, do, do you know what this means? This means that the basis for having a right standing before God, it does not depend on our own obedience. Rather, it depends on the obedience of Christ. Upon his death, which paid the penalty for our sins. Upon his resurrection, which delivers the promise of an indestructible life. Upon his eternal kingdom that comes through the fulfillment of the promise of David. Brothers, sisters, now that is a word of encouragement. In fact, there is no better word than what Paul has just delivered. And so we better pay heed to what he spoke. The command is to believe in this Jesus. And it is on that note that Paul finishes us off, finishes us off with a, a warning. Look at, look at our last two verses. Look at verses 40 and 41. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your day, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. For the one who refuses God's gracious offer of salvation, it will spell disaster for that man. Paul did not want these people to be like those Israelites in the wilderness who, despite God's deliverance, continued in their faithlessness towards God. He didn't want them to be like those Israelites during the time of the judges who, because of their disobedient ways, needed Savior after Savior after Savior to come and rescue them. He didn't want them to be like those Israelites who had rejected God as their king and desired a human king instead. Most importantly, Paul didn't want them to be like those Israelites within Jerusalem during his day, who when the Messiah stepped foot inside their city, refused to recognize him, 
and instead resorted to violence as they put an innocent man, a man who was their savior, to death. This warning that Paul gave, it's not just for the men and women in that synagogue on that day, but it is a warning for us as well. An encouraging word has been spoken to you. Do not reject it. Do not reject God's Savior. Turn from your sins and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. For he truly is your only hope of salvation. Let us pray. Father, you have been too kind and too gracious, too generous to your people. Because of our sins, we, we, we don't deserve any form of rescue. And we should have been the ones who were hanging on that tree. And yet in your mercy, you looked past our stubborn hearts and you sent your son to take our place. Help us to believe this message. Help us to turn from our sins and to trust in Jesus. We can only do this by the working of your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that your spirit would move within us today. That you would produce faith within us. That we might believe these encouraging words that came from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. We ask this in Jesus' name.